0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Campbell here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week?
1: I've been tolerable, Gary, tolerable. How are you? I'm kind of saying that not in the sense that I have been tolerable, but rather in that Jane Austen sense, you know, when they ask Mr Brinkley or whatever it is, how are you doing? He said, tolerable, sir, tolerable. Anyway. No, that's not a
0: reference I get because I'm not a middle-aged woman.
1: No, because you'd have to be a middle-aged woman to enjoy the prose of the finest writer in the English language. It seems to certainly help. So I think we'll start, Michael, with a little
0: discussion on the Irish Council for Civil Liberties because they've uh, popped up a couple of times this week and I think the director of the ICCL may actually be losing it.
1: Well, it's an important job and a stressful one at this time when so many human rights are under threat and attack. And in in his defence, I will just not leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, there is a slightly t- terrorish, terrorish, terror, terrierish, Quality to Gary, at times, which I imagine is very annoying. In fact, I don't have to imagine. I know is very annoying.
0: So now I, I want to, to lay out the, what's happening here, Michael, so that people understand the pressure that Liam Herrick, the uh, head of the ICCL, is under, and also understand that his more erratic behavior is, in fact, a perfectly reasonable response to the stress he's been put under.
1: Very empathetic.
0: So Herrick has never liked grit. Uh, he's smart enough Never to say anything about grip publicly, but he, uh, if you go through, you know, the tweets he's liked and things like that, there's a certain pattern uh, which indicates his views towards grip. But yesterday he liked a, um, there was a situation where some randomer was referenced in a grip article, um, one of his tweets, and instead of referencing it to him by name, they referenced it to, it was about a, a bar, they referenced it as like a happy customer of the bar. And he responded by accusing the author who wrote it of plagiarism and calling her a bitch.
1: Hold on now, just for clarity for Michael here. They referenced a tweet. Is that right? Yes,
0: they quoted one of his tweets in the article and
1: (laughs) didn't use his entire name. Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, Well, one has sympathy, of course, to the master crafters of tweeters and tweet about that. It seems to me that plagiarism is... Quite a big word for somebody referencing, or not, or without a name, a tweet. I mean, if you take chunk maybe, of the middle of Moby Dick and reproduce it under your own... Then yeah, That's pla- plagiarism, really, Gary? Sounds like a big... It's, that's a big name for a very, very small crime.
0: I mean, it's also not correct, because plagiarism is taking someone else's work and presenting it as your own, whereas this was clearly tweeted as coming from someone else. So... It was seen by by myself and John McGurk, and John, I think, retweeted it and basically said, you know, we would rather you didn't say these sort of things about our staff. You know, just as a general rule, it's not necessary. And this guy came back and said that because John had done that, he was trying to get him fired from his job. And I believe the exact phrase was, John McGurk and his team of incel pencil dicks. Which is presumably an
1: insult. I don't really care. For for the readers, we should point out that "incel" means involuntary celibates. Does uh, if I if I remember? Cause that's one that used to escape me until I I had a young person explain it to me. This is uh, that's what it means, isn't it, Gary? Uh,
0: yes, it does. It's a bit of an odd insult in this case, although he wouldn't know it because, as far as I know, every man who works with gripped is married. The only people who aren't are the uh, <laughs> are the female are two of the female reporters, one of whom he'd called a bitch. So like. Now he's just now he's just getting unnecessarily nasty, Michael. But anyway, the interesting thing about this is that this tweet was liked by Liam Herrick, the executive director of the ICCL. Which, to be honest, I didn't really see coming because you just assume that the person who is allegedly, you know, the, the spear tip of protection of human rights in Ireland, Michael, you just don't see him uh, approving in any way of someone being called
1: an incel pencil dick. They have a they have a view of the protection of human rights, Gary, which would not. Be- necessarily be one which on first sight would maybe parallel with the view that you or I might have of the defence of human rights, or indeed John Stuart Mill would have recognised as being in defence of human rights. When you look at their position on speech and the restrictions and regulation that we need for speech, both in real life and online, when you look at their position on the kinds of protections we might need to introduce regarding the ability for people to walk around or even stand on the side of a road and say the rosary in a very aggressive and threatening and life uh, uh, existence threatening manner like yeah so you
0: know potato potato so internally in gripped and also to some degree on social media people have been they, they've thought that this behavior should be beneath the executive director of the ICCL but Michael I'm here to tell you it was a perfectly reasonable response and I want to explain Liam Herrick's week uh, and how it led to this in a perfectly reasonable fashion. So I have exchanged, I think this week, somewhere in the region of a half dozen emails with Liam Herrick, by which I mean I've sent Liam Herrick about a half dozen emails, because Liam Herrick does not respond to my emails, nor does the ICCL. He may have a spam filter. No, they actually did respond this week. For the first time ever, I got a response from Liam Herrick uh, because the ICCL had falsely claimed that a law did something to them that it didn't. But we'll get to that. So at the start of the week, I start sending Liam Herrick and the ICCL emails. Because there was a situation in Fingal. Fingal County Council had refused to let the Rally for Life put up posters promoting the event. They said this was because the, the event was contentious. So I had had a, a bit of back and forth with the uh, with some of the people in Fingal County Council about you know, how the system works, Michael. Because if they can refuse to allow posters up because they are for contentious issues... There would have to be a system in place
1: where that is decided and you can appeal and I mean, all of these things. There would have, I'm sure there, there were a set of protocols put in place, clear, defined principles that would be applied so that they could point to other situations at other times and other organizations that had similarly been refused permission to up posters because of the contentious nature of uh, whatever it was they were doing. So, anyway, Fingal showed you the list of reasons that they had agreed upon formally and then published. Is that right?
0: Uh No, no, that that's not quite what happened. Uh, I will just use this point to say that while this related to pro-life posters or pro-life event, if the councils have the ability to do this, it could impact on anything, whether it's a conservative, liberal or progressive event, just really depending on the political leanings of some of the staff in the council. So that's the issue there.
1: If you announce that you're doing, a, say, a protest to bring on the revolution and create a Workers' paradise. Could that be perceived as contentious? Perhaps. I mean, nearly anything
0: could be uh, could be seen as contentious. Particularly when I asked them what how they defined contentiousness, they said it was members if they believed that members of the public would complain if the posters went up. So, of course, Michael, I asked them that um, you know would they refuse to allow, let's say, a, a gay pride march to uh, advertise their event in their uh, administrative area if they thought they might receive complaints. They weren't they weren't terribly uh quick to answer that
1: one. Tumbleweeds, I can see Gary on the answer to that one is tumbleweeds going down the main street of Fingal in the West. So I reached out to the ICCL because I thought, well this is a
0: legitimate threat to freedom of expression if councils are just going to do this on an ad hoc basis with absolutely nothing behind it. And they didn't get back to me, and I reached out to them again, and they didn't get back to me, and I reached out to them again, and so on. You see, Michael? I do see, The thing is just keep, keep sending emails that say, sorry, I'd just like to chase this up again, and then just do that day after day. Because I thought there was two options there, Michael. Either the ICCL would have to come out and say something that was, while also positive towards freedom of expression as a whole... Beneficial to a pro life group, which I had a feeling, Michael, they wouldn't do, or they ignore it, which is not really how, you know, the promotion of civil liberties is meant to go. But it has been a consistent strain of the ICCL. They will promote the civil liberties of anyone who they like. And if they don't like you, well, presumably you have rights. <laughs>
1: yeah, okay. Yeah, you gotta have friends.
0: Yeah. So anyway, in relation to the poster thing, in the end, it turned out that there was no policy. It'd been entirely an ad hoc decision. The people I talked to tried to bullshit me. Uh, then the press office tried to bullshit me more and complained to me for going directly to the person who'd made the decision because that person had um, confirmed to me that it had been done because it was contentious as opposed to the bullshit the press office was going to tell me. In
1: fact, you should clarify your position first so they can know which bullshit To get, I mean, you don't want to get two sets of bullshit, Gary, because you don't know which bullshit to believe then. Yeah, they came to me and said the event,
0: that the posters were refused because uh, the event was going to be held outside the administrative area of Fingal County Council. And then I was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, but you see, I have all the emails you sent, and I've talked to the people who made the decision, and that's not true. So, yeah. Uh,
1: You're cheating. You're cheating, Gary, by going around the system. That's.
0: Yes, but you see, Michael, if you think that someone is going to lie to you, you go to multiple people and don't tell anyone you've gone to multiple people. Because if you tell them you've gone to multiple people, then they won't lie to you or they'll
1: lie in a different way. No, Nobody nobody was nobody was lying. Nobody was going to lie. They were just giving alternative suggestions of different forms of truth. I mean, you're very prescriptive on this stuff, Gary. But anyway, go on. So anyway, the, you did eventually get some kind of response from the ICC. I Oh, not about this. No, they totally ignored this, 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 this was,
0: no, they got nothing on this. This is just to explain that it's been a stressful week for Liam Herrick because I have just been at him. Because every time I send something to the ICL, uh, ICCCL, I also send it directly to Liam Herrick. Oh, naturally, Michael. Anyway, the on the poster thing, eventually Fingal had to reverse his decision, uh, allow the posters to go up and say that they're going to review in totality the systems they have in place. Um allowing posters for political events and, and public events of these type. Um, the deputy mayor of Fingal saw the story I wrote and gripped about it and thought that there was a, a risk of reputational damage, Michael, if the council wasn't seen as um, as fair. So that was the start of the week. And that was, I was just hounding Liam Herrick on it. And then we got to the, to the thing that actually got Liam Herrick to respond to me for the first time in, I'd say, probably dozens of emails It was this. The ICCL took to Twitter and said that the 1997 Electoral Act, as amended, I think, in 2001. Well, they didn't mention that, but that's that's the actual part of it they're interested in. Stopped them from accepting any donation of 100 euro or more that was interested in social change. And I pointed out to the ICCL that that's not right. The law in no way does that. Why would they say such a thing? So Liam Herrick got back to me to say that, no, that was a mistake and we're going to clarify. Unfortunately, their clarification was also incorrect.
1: Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah.
0: So what the actual Act does. So they were saying basically they couldn't take any domestic donation over €100 for social change, uh, which is totally incorrect and exceptionally misleading, but is very much in the ICCL's interests. So what the Act actually does is it, it... covers what are called third parties. Now, third parties are defined as groups which have taken a donation of more than 100 euro in order to influence uh, public or state or public policy. So they are groups that are actively involved in politics. And if you are registered as a third party, you cannot accept foreign donations. So the ICCL has had uh, a bit of an issue with this before. They've been campaigning for years to get rid of this because if it was gotten rid of, The ICCL could accept foreign funding to do political work, but they could also go to foreign funders and basically lobby to be given funding for explicitly political things. And since the ICCL, its finances took a massive hit when Atlantic Philanthropies uh, pulled out, well, finished up, and they've been looking for other sources of revenue. Currently, about 80% of the ICCL's revenue comes from four foreign trusts or organisations. Less than 5%, 3 to 5, depending how you split it, comes from individual donations and membership fees. So the ICCL is effectively a creature of four foreign organisations. They are its funders. It needs them where it dies. So if this law was removed, Michael, it would be very financially advantageous to the ICCL. Potentially, yeah. I mean, they
1: would have a bigger pool to go out to fundraise with.
0: So I asked, I, I started sending Herrick emails about that then. Like, why would you say these things that aren't true? And I believe the question was, is the ICCL's interest in the um, in changing this act due to a legitimate belief that it limits civil liberties or due to a financial incentive on the part of the ICCL? Because that was the other thing. They had said that this was important because it limits, I believe the phrase was, it limits your civil liberties. Yours. Ours. Yours. Everyone's, Michael. Everyone is, is per because the ICCL cannot take more foreign money. So that's like, I have, you know, Liam I have effectively hounded Liam Herrick
1: this week. Well, I think it's time to stop then. Give them an arrest. But he's responded to me now, Michael. All of my previous work has been validated. This is why you should never respond to a barking dog. It just reaffirms them. They don't care if they're getting good attention or bad attention. They just want attention. This is why you never respond to the barking dog. Bad. Bad idea. So he re-
0: he responded to say that they were mistaken about the act because it was clear they were mistaken about the act, but didn't respond to the question about their financial interest in the overthrowing of this act. And I mean, on one hand, his intervention got me to change ICCL, you know, falsely says something to ICCL mistakenly says something.
1: Okay, which is yeah you know, an important change.
0: But anyway, that's the kind of stress I put him under this week. And that's, I think, what led to him liking something calling all of the people at GRIPT incel pencil dicks. Because Michael, we've been paying a lot of attention to the ICCL's funding. Like a lot of it, way more than the ICCL has ever got from anyone else. And that I imagine is unpleasant. And also they're, they're going to have their you know, their their new annual accounts up soon and we're going to go through those and we're going to find out the ICCL is still not really an Irish organization at all and that's going to annoy them again. Is the highlight of my week was getting some uh, posters uh, put up. It was just one of those things where you're like, you know when you hear something and you're like, I'm gonna guess straight off the bat that the council has no policies in place for this, and once I ask, they're gonna to go totally into lockdown because they realise that they've no policies in place for this. It's written down anywhere. Yeah, but it's one of the situations where no comment is quite damning. Like I had a, or, because you just assume if they had a reason, they're gonna tell you. So, for instance, Michael, I was doing a thing this week where I was trying to show that um, a particular uh, company that sells services to businesses was misselling its product to businesses and not informing them of the liabilities that they would take on. And as part of that, I um, because they wouldn't te- comment on it, I went through their sales process. As in, I contacted their sales team and said I was interested in their product.
1: Okay.
0: And wouldn't you know, Michael, on that sales call, uh, the sales team were, I would say, openly misleading and explicitly did not tell me about some of the risks that I knew were in the contract that they would have me sign. And when I went back to the, the overarching company, um, this is B O I P A, if anyone is interested. They, they do, they, um, they do services that allow merchants to accept uh, payments over the phone and stuff like that. Uh, and when I went back and went, by the way, I have a recording of me talking to your sales team where your sales team seemed to, um, openly mislead what they think is a pair, a, a, a possible customer. The response I got back was, we're not going to be commenting on that.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. And you're like, well, I, I really think you should because, like,
1: it's, it doesn't look great. Well, you know what, Gary? There, is, there, there may be a great wisdom there. I mean, as the people like to say, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. This may be a, an example of somebody saying, you know what? We're just going to sit in the hole we're in. We don't think we'll have any interest in getting this hole any deeper, or any bigger for, for the time being.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's true. But by the same metric, you know, if you, just, if you turn up covered in
1: shit, sometimes you're going to have to explain how it got on you. You know, I think most of the time, most people are concerned about just getting, the, getting rid of the shit. They don't really care where it came from.
0: Yeah, so actually, if any listeners are uh, involved in business and use BOIPA's uh, systems, please do send me an email at garyacrip.ie. I would be interested in talking to you because I'm trying to find as many businesses as possible who've dealt with them so I can see if this is a systematic pattern. But it certainly seems to be happening. They, their contracts are very fun, the BOIPAs, and their sales team are just not informing people of what's in the contract before they sign up.
1: It's also possible that the sales team is not informed. No, that is not, by the way, either justification or mitigation. It could, in fact, be regarded as being even more damning if you were to deliberately keep your uh, staff under-informed.
0: So, you, yeah, you have a couple of options there that could lead to this. But in general, if you are selling a financial product, the regulators... Kind of like you to um, train your people
1: to sell a property. They do. They like. They it's are just one of those things. that's one of their one of their little picky points is that they like the people to be in a position to actually explain what the hell they're talking about. So there is
0: some there is some polling that is out uh, in the Sunday Independent. It's from Ireland. Thinks there's some interesting political stuff there, but there's not really much movement on it. But there was also some interesting polling in it on uh, transgenderism. Now, I find it particularly interesting because it is given... We haven't seen the full breakdown of it yet, so I imagine there's a massive age difference in in this. But what is quite interesting is they asked... It looks like three questions um, about transgender people. One was, to what extent, if at all, do you agree with the statement, a transgender man is a man? One was, to what extent, if at all, do you agree with the statement, a transgender woman is a woman? And one was, should a transgender woman be allowed to compete in female sports? And the interesting thing is this. 68% of people said no to should a transgender woman be allowed to compete in female sports. Less than 20% said yes. Only 17%. Okay? But then when you go down to to what extent of it all do you agree with the statement a transgender man is a man or transgender woman is a woman, you get nearly identical results. About 48% saying uh, they agree with that. Either... Uh, They just agree in general, or they strongly agree. But here's the thing. A transgender man is a man. 23% strongly agree with that. Only 17%
1: said should a transgender woman be allowed to compete in female sports. There just seems to be an incongruity there, doesn't there? Or at least a a willingness on the face of it to deal unfairly and inequitably, inequitably with people. I
0: don't think transgender men are men, or transgender women are women. So I don't think that they should participate in female sports although in the male category that's pretty much an open category do what you want it is strange to me that there are people who strongly agree with that statement but then say and actually in relation to a transgender woman as a woman it's 21% which is uh, strongly agree which is close enough to the 23 on men but then you're still 4% over the amount of people who say that transgender woman should be allowed to compete in female sports and I find it very odd that people would say absolutely they are a woman and then say no you can't do that because I think my position is consistent. You don't get to do that because you're not that. But this is yes, but no, and I'm not quite sure where it comes from.
1: Well, I, I okay, I'll give you I'll give you a theory. Okay, I'll give you a possible explanation. Right, the it, that it's not about some kind of a, a notion of what is a man or what is a woman, but rather the notion of advantage that somebody who was born biologically male and has transitioned to being female which is their gender and their true gender identity is female but they will carry with them the biological advantages and in sport for example there are certain women who have a naturally high an unusually high uh, production of testosterone which will give them an advantage in sport, and the levels of testosterone are therefore there is actually a level of testosterone which is laid down, which says you can't compete if your testosterone level is at or above this level, so that there are there are already in place rules for for people who are biologically women there are they are born women and they still identify as women, but they may have problems competing in sport now. You could respond to that. Well, actually, ironically, that while these women have higher levels of testosterone, people who ha- are who are who are now transitioning, uh, at least hormonally transitioning, would actually have lower levels of testosterone than these women will have. So that that would they would actually be unaffected by the current rules. But what do you think of that? Maybe it's a question not of uh, identity, but rather of accrued advantage. So
0: I think the problem there is this. Within any general population, there are going to be people who are advantaged in certain sports. There are certain body types that are better for deadlifting, for swimming, for different sorts of things.
1: There are going to be people who are, who have a genetic or biological advantage by, it may be the size of their heart or the amount of, they have a peculiar capacity or peculiar high capacity to carry oxygen in their blood, which may be genetic, or maybe because they they were born and were brought up at a at an altitude or whatever anyway the the body is a, a wonderful and complex thing and different different people will have different advantages in different areas
0: and sport allows for that on the basis that that is dif- those are advantages and disadvantages within a category but we also recognize that different categories have different very different base levels so on average men are much stronger than women much much stronger than women and they have a variety of advantages in those sorts of uh, sports. And that to me seems fair. We note that on average, these categories are so different that there cannot be fair competition between them. But if you were to take someone from one category and then say they are now in all senses a member of the other category, well, then that's just difference within the category. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that, I think, by the way, is, is one of the common refrains from transgender activists for why transgender people should be allowed compete in, in female categories. Yes. Because if they're female, then it logically makes sense that it's just a difference within the female category. And I think once you accept that proposition, yeah, they have a lot of point, which is why you shouldn't accept the proposition to begin with. And I don't really understand why people would. And it strikes me as this, part, It's It's like this. If you believe these people are legitimately and wholly the gender that they identify as, you should not discriminate against them as if they were not in any aspect of it. And that is what is happening here. It's people saying, yes, we believe this, but also you don't get to do this, even though we say that we believe this. And I don't think you do.
1: Yeah, I, 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 just, well, I think on this particular issue, I think there's a strong desire for people to be compassionate and empathetic. Also, there's just a sense of, you know, courtesy and respect. And sure, you know, people say that. I mean, what harm does it do? fine and just let's be open and, and and nice and welcoming about this. Let's not be intolerant. On the issue of what
0: harm does it do, this subject in general, I think that the fundamental harm it does is that it propagates something that isn't true. That I think is actually the, the fundamental issue here. And particularly in relation to hate speech laws and laws that can spell speech in this area, they're forcing people to say things that they do not believe fundamentally is
1: true. There is something very odd, I think, people haven't really reflected upon this, about the idea that we have now moved to a position not just that people will be given the right to believe whatever they want to believe about their own identity and their right to present themselves within a certain identity and even their right to be treated as that. But you're now actually saying to people, it's not enough that X person is allowed to believe to, to be something. You must participate in their belief. You must assent. It used to be an own principle in theology, Gary, <laughs> no interest to you in algebra, which used to distinguish between the right to dissent and the right to withhold dissent. And the churches were not very hot on the idea that you could dissent from certain things. But they would say, you can't dissent, but you can withhold your assent. In this case, people are being told, increasingly, it, it feels like, you can't even withhold assent. You must actually Say, yes, you say that this is who you are, this is your lived experience, and I agree, I believe this as well. And the problem with that is many, many people patently don't agree with that, and you're forcing them to either lie or to ch- or in some way to change their internal belief systems in response to this. There's an oddly religious, in fact, I think there's an oddly religious religious character to an awful lot of this debate when it comes about the notion of self and what is me, who is me, what does that characterise that isn't a really about, it's a very odd metaphysical discussion when they, you hear people talking about this. But Gary, how about this? Say you ask a different question, right, about sport, and you were to ask, well, do you think that since trying?" should be allowed to change in women's locker rooms, right? Because for many women who have a problem with this area, it's about the area of what they call safe spaces or women-only spaces, right? And I think an awful lot of people who are talking about this also are simply people who don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this issue. And let's face it, why should they? And this is the fairly much the definition of a minority interest. Well, what do you think, if, if you take the position, trans women are women, trans men are men, should trans women be allowed to change in locker rooms Or change rooms in gyms or sports facilities, whatever, with uh, with other women. I would say that most, you'd have to say that the answer should be yes. But if you then told people that, unlike one, that the the large majority of say maybe don't actually biologically transition now, would that change their understanding of what was acceptable?
0: I think to take you, the point you said about it just being a, a small thing. Um, I don't think it is. I think it impacts on a very small amount of people. I'm not
1: saying it's a small thing. I think it's na- the nature of its consequences. I'm not saying. I don't mean that. I mean that for the there are the, the number of people who are actually actively interested in this and engaged in this topic is quite small. The most, and I think that's true of most things in politics. By the way. I mean, this is not something that people are going to sit down and spend a an lot of time reflecting deeply upon. They're going to basically take their opinions most of the time from whatever the the, the common respectable opinion that exists in the ether already has established to be the respectable opinion.
0: Where you, you, you were talking there about um, changing rooms, it is a topic of a lot of discussion. And it's not a topic I have ever really thought about or particularly cared about, although I know it's it's a topic of particular concerns to particular groups. My interest in this area is is twofold. The primary interest is the impact that this is having on laws, and particularly in relation to hate speech. Because I think the hate speech we've seen in relation to transgenderism is different from anything I've seen go before, at least in a sort of Western country, in that it is not related to a statement of fact, it's related to an ideological position. Yeah. So... The Holocaust either happened or didn't happen. It is an event of fact. So, German laws against denying the Holocaust, while you can say they're an infringement on your civil liberties, ultimately it is provable. It is an event. It can be shown to happen. You can be shown to be wrong. If the government brings in laws which say that saying a transgender man is actually a woman, that's not a statement of fact. That is an ideological position based on a particular construction of the word man. And I think that's different to what's come before, as it is saying that people must adhere not just to statements of fact, but to particular ideological position. I think people do not understand how consequential that actually is as a principle.
1: I'm not saying I disagree with you, but what I would say is I think the response they would say is that actually definition of man and woman are always ideological. These are constructs and you're saying that a woman is this biological thing, a man is this biological thing. Historically, we have defined... That
0: doesn't matter. It, it does not matter if that's true. Because what matters is that the state is going to compel a particular view of it. It doesn't matter if it's an ideological construction and has always been, because the state has never attempted to compel any particular understanding of it. And now, well, at least in Ireland, we are talking about it. You're seeing it in Scotland, England less so, but you are seeing, you know, police up because someone tweeted out something Totally anodyne about this, so I think there is a legitimate
1: interest there. It is, it is, it is, it is odd that we have quite rightly got laws which protect people's rights uh, for freedom of religion. But I cannot think of any of those protections where, if I were to say, for example. I believe that Jesus Christ was a historical figure who was also the Son of God, that other people will have to agree with me, or if I were to say I am an immortal figure and I have an immortal soul, and the spirit of the holy Sp- the Holy Spirit is working through me and I can say that, and I can believe that, but n- nobody else has to if somebody comes along and says you are a you are a sack of meat and when you when you die, you will be gone forever. You, know, you're, you, you are you're you're mischaracterizing me as non-eternal being, but you're allowed to do this? This is the only example of religious faith that I can think of, where we're, you have to agree with the religion of the person you're speaking to. So that, I think,
0: is my first concern, or my first reason I'm interested in this area. And the second is what we've seen with children, and the massive, massive increases in the number of children going forward being put on puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones. And because of that, the substantial increase in detransitioners and the substantial increase in conversation about how detransitioning is, at best, a partial success story. And you're going to have people who are left with things like permanent sterility, lack of sexual function, things of that nature, based on decisions they made when they were adolescents and sometimes quite young adolescents. Yeah. Because the overarching system says that we should affirm those decisions, even if that leads to terrible consequences, because it was what they said they wanted at the time. And that, to me, just seems to be not just a bad idea, but an idea that will clearly have substantially negative consequences down the road for LGBT groups, because this is only going to end up badly.
1: It also feels like a negligent attitude, I mean negligence in the real sense, that there is an absence of an adult in the room saying this is not something that... uh as the court case in the United Kingdom said was the Kira Bell case am i right with the name yeah the Kira Bell case said that uh it is impossible really to imagine that a prepubescent child is in a position to understand what it means to live your adult your live your life as an adult without with no sexual function it just that just is a very, very hard notion to construe. I mean, how can you explain to a 12-year-old or 11-year-old child what no sexual function will mean? An adult will understand that or have an understanding of that. child can't. So you have that. Then
0: you have the fact that the research in this area that is used to, to back these actions is, at best, Michael, shoddy. It is not of the quality you would want before embarking on a policy that is going to have such a large impact on so many people. And the LGBT groups have fallen largely behind this. I think for very particular reasons. But this is obviously going to end with detransitioners eventually breaking through into the mainstream, ending up on TV and basically saying, this was done to me. And at that point, it is not going to go well for anyone involved. Because the public, while they kind of go along with stuff, get angry enough and suddenly they will vote for policies and things you're not going to like. And that to me seems like a very... Very predictable outcome of this. But the LGBT charities, your people like Stonewall, on an organisational level, they have to do this because most of their earlier work is completed and the funding, the areas where you can get funding, this is that area. They need a cause to go behind or those organisations die. So they have no capability to speak out against these things because they require these things to keep operating. So they have an incentive to keep pushing for it and pushing for it and going beyond what the public will accept. And eventually, there will be a backlash, and that 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 seems to me absolutely predictable, and it's pretty clear that's what's going to happen.
1: Well, it's funny you should say that. I don't know, I don't know if you noticed or you, you this story. It's not a big story, but I thought it was interesting. Little a straw in the wind, shall we say? Uh, Halifax in the United Kingdom. It's uh, uh, used to be a building society. I think maybe it's a bank nowadays. I'm not sure. Had a little bit of a Twitter problem. I did you come across this? There, where um, they were they they were online and they were talking about they have this new policy where their staff will have a badge and the badge underneath the name of their name of the name of the person they will give their preferred pronouns. And they were talking about this new policy and it was Halifax was all about the inclusivity and so on and so forth. And that was grand. And somebody tweeted at them, or a couple of people tweeted at them, saying, well, you know, really, I, I do not want this kind of thing in my back. I just want lower interest rates or something. Anyway, whoever was in charge of the social media, uh, it's reported in the Daily Mail and other papers as being a person, I think called Andy M, responded, well, you know, you're, you're always perfect. If you're not happy with our policies, you're perfectly free to close your account. Now, Gary, my sense is, that that is not the answer you should really be giving to people who are having a bit of a spat with you on Twitter if you're in a business. Well, you're perfectly free just to buy your chips elsewhere or buy your tellys. We don't want your business. Because lo and behold, large numbers of people started to say, well, if that's your attitude, that's what we're going to do. Now, quite how substantial this has been or or is going to be, we don't know. It may be just a keep up teacup. But I closed the business anyway. And I think yesterday, if at several hundred people think, had actually said that they were they were they had closed their accounts or they were closing their accounts, I, I just thought it gave it was a wonderful example of tone deafness. You could my speculation, Gary, is that this was not a, a comment which was made by a, se- a senior member of the bank's management, but rather, shall we say, the the, the classic twenty something guy who was working in the social media department who may not, right now as we speak, Gary, have a job. You, are you aware of Gerard Ratner? Are you too young to remember the Ratner incident? Gerard Ratner was the, he was the, heir. He, I mean, he was the chief officer, CEO, whatever, hmm. of a company in the United Kingdom in the 1980s, I think, I'm sure it was the 80s, called Ratners. And they were jewelers and they used to sell very cheap silver and gold products, like nine-carat gold-plated uh, I don't, chains, braces. They used to sell silver-plated EPNS goblets on on trays that people would have in their living rooms. It was tat. And on one famous occasion, Gerald Ratner, I think at a, a speech to the CBI, said, people can't understand how we keep our prices so low. It is a very easy to explain why our stuff is TAT. Do you know what happened to Ratner's, Gary? Are you aware of Ratner's as a big brand of the high street? I'm not, Michael. And the reason is because when the owner of that company or the CEO of that company announced that they were selling TAT, people stopped buying it. And, tat and Ratner's disappeared off the face of the earth. So a number of social media commentators have been wondering, could this be a Ratner's moment? No, I'm sceptical. It's much easier to stop buying something than to change your your mortgage over from one bank to another. There are practical issues and people are lazy. I saw the Daily Mail doing
0: a sort of, so many people have closed their accounts because of this tweet. But I would be actually quite interested to see the numbers because I assume they're quite small. Also, I mean, the vast majority of the banking
1: public uh, are not going to see that tweet ever. That's the thing. That is exactly the thing I the, I wonder about. The count at the last time that somebody done it had been people had said on Twitter. Now, Gary, you can place as much or as little weight on what people say on Twitter as you like. But some hundreds of people on Twitter had said they were closing the accounts, which is not insubstantial. You don't want to lose four or five hundred or Will say a few hundred, anyway, whatever it was. Customers, you don't want to lose customers unnecessarily at any time. However, hmm. this the point of was about the story is that it is now broken out of Twitter and is now in the Daily Mail, for example, and other, many other newspapers also. And I just it may die a death, it may fizzle like a damp squib, or it may just as sometimes these stories do generate a an energy of its own and become a real problem for Halifax. For me. Leaving all that aside, the thing I thought was most interesting was the little window into the into the into the the soul of these of the people in charge. Uh, not in charge, but in this case of the social media. Well, if you don't like it, you can always change. That is such a stupid attitude. Do you not think that that's the the, the curious thing about this? What would possess you to say to somebody who had a different opinion about you or didn't care about it? Well, take your business elsewhere. And this is infecting a lot of corporate. And if you're talking about backlashes, this may not be that backlash, Gary, but I think that that backlash will come when ordinary people are forced to actually deal with this and think about it. Not because they care particularly one way or the other or have strong opinions. They just don't want to be bothered by this nonsense. It is an interesting example of the influence
0: a very small group of people can have if if there is a consistency in that group and they care about these issues. So the average person doesn't care, but there are people who very much care. It used to just be on the transgender side. Now it's on both sides, and that creates a problem. Whereas before, you just do whatever the activists wanted because they care, the average public doesn't, but there's a reputational risk. Now you've got a reputational risk whichever way you go, which is a new thing, although it is still very much to one side. I
1: suppose that is actually, the, that's the question, isn't it, at the end of that, and would we'll tie this up. If there is no cost or at least no perceived cost to taking a position, and you can accrue reputational bonus points and respectability bonus points among certain, uh, certain elements of the society by taking that position, but there's no cost to it. Well, then the, the very normal and natural thing is to adopt that position. The problem is mm. when the context changes and you go from being into a no-cost no area to a cost area, and you're stuck with the position. It's kind, You now have to manage a route out. You have to negotiate a, a way out where you don't want to sort of deny the previous position. You don't want to decry that because that's what upset people. But now you've realized, oh, actually, there is a cost to this, potentially. Practical cost, reputational cost, whatever it is. And now we have to find a way of, hmm. and you, And it may be that people looking on, who haven't been or haven't been involved, simply say, you know what? I think this is a good example of somewhere where we just won't have a position.
0: I mean, you you see
1: it. If you go on
0: Twitter during Gay Pride Month and you look at all of the, you pick a company that has a global presence and you just go through all of their regional headquarters and you see rainbow flag after rainbow flag after rainbow flag. And then you see the Middle East or you see certain parts of Asia or you see anywhere where doing so would have a cost and they won't do it. Because there's a cost, but they'll do it everywhere else and they'll speak incredibly strongly, Michael, of their passion for gay rights and you know, how dedicated they are to it as a company while doing massive amounts of business with countries in which homosexuality is punishable by execution.
1: Which a lot of people would feel like is a very negative thing to do.
0: And you would think that those groups in those countries, Michael, if they really believe what they're doing, might in some way lobby against that. But you they won't. Imagine. Where actually I think it's, it's been interesting is politics. And it's it's had a different impact on politics than it has on society more generally and on businesses. It's convinced politicians to get involved in areas not where there's a direct loss, but where there's no upside. And you've kind of seen it with Finnegale. The areas that they've actually done things on tend to be kind of culture war issues, social issues. And so they do these things and then they sit there thinking that there's going to be a reward.
1: <laughs>
0: and there's never a reward. And yeah. they seem legitimately confused about why that is. And it's because there was never going to be a reward. In some instances, it's that the NGOs are just wildly out of step with the public. Not that the public is opposed, but that the public doesn't care. On other areas, it's there are certain sections of the public that care, but they're not going to vote for you anyway.
1: Getting back over the, the territory, we've observed many times that, that it has seemed to us odd that Michal Martin's administration in Fianna Fáil seems to be peculiarly in, engaged in attracting the approbation of a large groups of people who have never voted Fianna Fáil, will never vote for Fianna Fáil, who have a cultural attitude to Fianna Fáil, which is similar to that experience they have when they find something in the bottom of their shoe. And yet they continue to rub up against these people, to make nice to them, and then look hurt and puzzled. Why don't you vote for me? Well, why should we? We don't like you. We have no respect for
0: you. I said there's no cost, and politically that that can often be true. But what happens is, organisationally, you put resources behind these things, and you spend your time on it, and you focus on it, and other stuff doesn't get done. So, Michael, how many votes do you think Fine Gael is going to win when it passes hate speech legislation, as it seems desperately to want to?
1: I get minus some number. To the extent that anybody who is a traditional Fine Gael voter is going to be interested in this. I think they're going to be, I would suspect, a majority. no, I don't think very many will be interested, but I, 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 on balance, I think they would find it less rather than more. I think that the Labour Party, the Social Democrats, Greens, maybe even saying, Oh although no, I don't know much about vote might be happy with this. But I think, no. Hate speech, really?
0: But that's, they're spending time and effort and resources on getting that over the line, and I don't think there's going to be any political benefit to them, nor do I think they're particularly ideologically committed to it, because let's be frank, they're not. But they'll do it because it's the thing to do, without thinking, maybe the reason we're doing so fucking badly is because we keep doing things that other people are telling us are the things to do and which never seemed to actually translate into either solving the problems that would get people to vote for us, or just convincing people to vote for us more
1: generally. It's also just maybe an existential, shall we say, philosophical issue here, Gary. that and many politicians have now come to the conclusion that all that stuff, that hard stuff like the economy and house building and house prices and the health system, all that, that's too hard. That's just too hard, Gary. We just, we don't know how to fix that. So let's do something else. Let's do something we can do. Yeah, this is, we've had all those nice people in from the NGOs. And let's face it, most TDs seem to be more easily lobbied and influenced by NGOs now than they do by the great unwashed. So the NGOs say this is the thing we want. So let's do that. And the papers will write about it and say that was a good idea. And we can't just do nothing. And since we can't do anything about the things that people actually care about, we can at least do something that the NGOs and the papers care about. You know, and that's not nothing. So that's a good thing. And that would be a good point if it had worked out for them. Yeah, but what else are they going to do? Actually introduce policies that would make the lives of people better? That's not going to happen.
0: Anyway, we will be back next Sunday, I believe.
1: Unless it's my colleague. Dio valente. Until then, bye bye. All the best.